0: Father, we're indeed so thankful for all the many ways in which you have blessed us and provided for us, both as a congregation, as a church, and as as individuals. You have given us uh, everything in Christ. You've blessed us with every heavenly blessing, and we have the riches of Christ, which are ours spiritually, which enable us to face life, face the issues of life living in the devil's world in such a way that we can glorify you as we take your word and apply it consistently in our lives. Father, we pray now as we study your word this evening and that you would help us to understand these things and that they may be useful to us as we think through the issues of our day and applying these principles to the, the things that we see and hear around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last week I said we were done with our study on economics and I spoke too soon, I didn't realize uh, when I finished, I was in kind of a hurry. There were a couple of things I did not get to, and it occurred to me within about five minutes. So I want to go back and pick up a couple, one thing I did last week and then close out with one other particular passage. Now, the, the, the basis, the reason we got into this study, I always like to say something about this if I can, that we're, I'm not just spinning off into some topical study because uh, I feel like that's something we ought to do. The passage that we get into in Acts 4.32 is a passage that speaks of the uh, early believers in Jerusalem, uh, many of them selling all of their lands, all their houses, and taking that which they made from the, the sale of their property and laying it at the apostles' feet, which means they gave it to the church, uh, to be distributed to each as anyone had need. And this is often gone, to, gone through, this passage is often approached from the vantage point that this is some sort of uh, approval by the Bible of, of socialism or some kind of social, social activity. And so I took that opportunity to address this, that the Bible is completely against anything related to socialism or communism. There are two basic, two major passages that are used for this to support this idea. One comes from the uh, Acts four. The other comes from Matthew Matthew 25. I laid out just by way of review basic principles that we developed as we went through Genesis. First of all, starting at about the 10 o'clock position, the emphasis on that first divine institution, personal responsibility and accountability. This is so crucial. All the way through Scripture, it is the individual who has responsibility for taking care of those who are financially destitute, those who have gone through difficulty. It is never delegated to the government except in a small way under the Mosaic Law. one ten 10%... Uh, tax every third year, one tithe every third year. So that was minimal. It is the responsibility of the individual. It is never the responsibility of the government. In fact, when the government takes over that responsibility in order to fulfill it because of the inefficiency of government, the taxes that are thus imposed upon the citizenry are so oppressive that the government slips easily into tyranny in order to fulfill what What they've fooled the public into thinking is their responsibility and a common good. The second uh, benchmark of a solid biblical view of economics is the right to the rewards of someone's personal labor. If I work, I have the right to all of the rewards, all of the profits, except for that which is legitimately taxed by government. Now, if you live in a government and they have illegitimate taxation... That's never a basis for revolt in Scripture because that was exactly what the Lord warned would take place when they received a human king. We went over that last time in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that when you get a king, this is what he's going to do. And basically the description was that you will, he will begin to oppress, oppress the people, but there's never a hint there that, well, if you get a king that does that, then you kick him out and you get another one. Uh, you're stuck with it. You make the decision to have that kind of government, and that is what you're going to get. Uh, we looked at the imputation of value, and that, re- as it relates to uh, economics, uh, that the Word of God emphasizes the right of individuals to own property, to preserve property, to preserve property generationally, so that the Bible is uh, against, it never authorizes an inheritance tax and it doesn't authorize property tax. All a property tax is is renting your property from the government. It it means you really don't ultimately own your property. The government does. Uh, So both are unacceptable taxes under the righteous system of the Mosaic Law. Uh, The Bible supports the validity of wealth accumulation. In fact, it approves of that and endorses it in the Mosaic Law that as one generation goes, to, passes away, then they are to have accumulated wealth to pass on to the next generation. It blessed is the uh, man who has an inheritance to pass on to his children's children. Uh, tithing. There, one tithe. There were three different tithes in the Mosaic Law. One tithe every third year uh, was taken, one of those three was taken every third year, and it was a limited safety net. The primary safety net is the last one, and that is personal individual compassion, the responsibility of the individual to take care of family and those others in need. It is not the responsibility of a national government or an international government to attempt to end poverty. Both the Old Testament Torah and the New Testament, when Jesus is just reiterating what the Torah said, affirm that because we live in a fallen world, poverty and the poor will always be with us. Now, that's not a prescription. That is a description. God is not saying, go out and make sure there are always poor people present. He's simply affirming the reality that because we live in a fallen world there are always going to be the poor and consequently there are always going to be the rich because if you don't have uh, the wealthy you do not have a comparison point to have the poor. But what's interesting is we have an institution uh, that has established itself on our borders up in New York that has set forth a goal. It is a plan that was set forth in 1995, I believe, as a 20-year plan called the Millennium Development Goals. And on the headline, on the banner at the top of their the webpage at www.un/millennium, you see that announcement that yes, indeed, we can end poverty by 2015. So I thought that y'all would enjoy seeing that that um this is the same institution remember that has claimed messianic credentials by putting uh, over the entryway to the United Nations a quote from uh, Isaiah chapter 2 uh, the the well-known quote related to the uh, world or in world peace when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom That only at that time will we beat our swords swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and man will learn war no more. That only happens when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, when the Messiah returns and destroys the enemy of God as depicted in the second Psalm. Psalm 2 is a picture of the kings of the earth gathering against uh, the Lord and his Messiah and they destroy the lord and his messiah destroy these nations that are opposed to god and then and only then according to the old testament can there be world peace deuteronomy 15:11 says that the poor will never cease to be in the land but the un says we can end poverty who are you going to believe the un or god then Jesus reiterates what Matthew says when he says, uh, for, you, for you have the poor with you always, for you have the poor with you always and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. He's just reiterating the uh, principle that the poor will always be there. Once again, the UN says, nope, weaken in poverty by 2015. So that's where your tax dollars go. Now there are, let me see, last time when I started, uh, made reference to this quote from Ron Sider. Ron Sider wrote a book in the late 70s called Rich, or early 80s rather, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. He is one of two individuals who've been very influential at promoting a view of socialism among Christians. They're not the only ones, but they're some of the most prominent ones. In fact, uh, in the Jude series and in the Colossians series on Sunday mornings, sometime after the new year as we go through some of the things, I've been doing some uh, reading and research, and I have just become enlightened as to the, the breadth and the depth of socialist thinking among Megachurch evangelical leaders in this country. This is, this is what they, they are firmly committed to as well. And yet that is not something that is, that is very well known. And yet they believe they, they're right on board with this whole plan to end world hunger, end world poverty. It's not the mission of the church. It's not the mission of government biblically. God did not give that responsibility to either, uh, either the church or, or, the, or, or government. Now, this quote that I have here is a quote that is, I, I, I've heard our president recently use something similar to this. This is a very popular scenario from the mouth of a socialist because they, they basically have a hatred of the prosperity of America. And, and so they want to blame Americans. We're just a, a bunch of, of uh, greedy consumers and we, we use up too much of the world's resources, and the best thing that can happen is for us to get rid of all of our cars and all of our electricity and everything and and just live as if we, we, were, we were Neanderthals. Uh, and Ron Sider has this same scenario in his introduction to his book. He states, the food crisis is only the visible tip of the I- iceberg. Back then, uh, everybody thought that within the next 10 years, we would hit... Uh, A wall where we could no longer, the world could no longer produce enough food to feed everybody. I remember in a youth group presentation uh, at the church where I grew up, hearing a seminary student, uh, I think, give a talk to the teen group about how by 1976 there would be world hunger because we couldn't keep, this was about 10 years before that, Uh, that we could not, uh, the world could not produce enough grain, rice, food, whatever, to sustain uh, the population. Trouble is, agricultural technology has developed along with the population, so we still have more than enough food to feed the population. The problem isn't enough food. The problem is government interference in a vast number of governments. You go to the, the nations that have great poverty, you will also discover tremendous government interference. And then when uh, the U.S. or the West or the U.N. sends food aid, what happens is we can't, unless it's a a monster crisis, uh, the U.N., the U.S., uh, Europe cannot send food aid directly to the people It goes to the government. And then the socialist government, which by definition being a socialist government is highly inefficient and corrupt, uh, basically will oversee the the destruction of probably 60% of the food that is sent there. And the people still go go hungry. Only the the wealthy and the powerful in the country have access to that food. They'll resell it somewhere else for a profit or any uh, number of other things. And this happens over and over and over again. And the poor people in these impoverished nations uh, never get what is what is headed to them. But that is not Sider's point in this intro. He says, most serious is the unjust. Key word, unjust. That is a value word, an ethics word. He He's making a statement. He says, there is not a righteous division of the earth's food and resources. Well, righteous mean according to some standard. So whose standard is he talking about here? Is he talking about God's standard? According to Ron Ron Sider, God must be unjust because God's the ultimate sovereign who oversees the distribution of agricultural fertility. And so this must be God's fault. He's not saying that overtly, but that certainly is the subtext. He then says 30% of the world's population lives in... Uh, lives in the developed countries but this minority of less than one-third eats three-quarters of the world's protein each year so he said you know there's a protein problem but a lot of nations don't need that a lot of cultures don't eat protein you can't force them to change their diet if you did they would have a lot of problems they, they they've never had a protein-based diet in many many cultures He goes on to say less than 6% of the world's population lives in the United States, but we regularly demand about 33% of most minerals and energy consumed every year. But what he doesn't take into account here, and this is one of the points I left out last time, is that it is the United States and the West that has developed the technology to give us all that we are consuming. If, If it weren't for the United States and Western industrialized nations... Then these, these third world countries would never have developed the technology, uh, to, to, wouldn't have any access to technology in order to have any consumption of, uh, of minerals or oil or energy or anything else. The nations that have produced are the nations that have a right to enjoy the fruits of their production. That goes back to one of the foundational principles, the second foundational principle that I began with, that if you work, you have the right to enjoy the fruits of your labor. And so there are cultures that, are, that based on ultimately religious foundations, which we did look at last time, that based on their religious views of animals, of the world, of work, that because of those those distorted and perverted views, they've never produced, they never will produce and that's why they only consume a small amount. It's because they don't have the resources because they don't work. They don't produce. They don't develop technology to uh, enjoy that in those in those countries. Um, the video that I was going to show that, that Jeff sent was really interesting. The, it involved a graph which showed how um, how all, and looked at all the countries in the world and how they had gone from from a low life expectancy two hundred years ago of about twenty five to thirty years, and how little wealth they had and of course everybody's as you move through time, different countries break out of that lower corner they people begin to live longer and they have ac- they have greater wealth and it 's led by the u s and it's led by Western nations. And, and then what happens is the rest of the world begins to ride along on those coattails. And by the time that you get up to today, you have a few countries that are still down in the lower quadrant, but most of them are moving out of that lower co- quadrant, and they're ge- getting there because of the wealth of the capitalist system in the West that has developed all of this technology and provided it for the rest of the world. And so these socialists like Ron Sider and others who talk try to put us on a guilt trip saying, well, you know, Americans just consume too much. They consume all this energy in the world. We're going to run out and all this other stuff. They They fail to ever mention the fact that we're simply consuming what we produce. And we have every right to do that, and in fact, we should enjoy greatly and celebrate the consumption of what our culture has produced, because that's the result of the hard work of, 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 of our people, and there's nothing ethically wrong with that unless you're operating on an anti-biblical ethic, an anti-biblical view of, of righteousness. So I wanted to have a couple of comment make some comments on that uh, that I missed last time and then I want to go to the one last passage that is almost always gone to to support some form of of Christian socialism that we should be taking care of the poor and this is in, found in Matthew chapter 25 Matthew chapter 25 and It's always important when you study the Bible or anything else that we understand the context i've been uh beating this principle for the last week or so text without a context leaves you with a con job and so what happens is that you will have people who will go to the end of Matthew chapter 25 where you have the uh uh, uh the the story of uh of, of Jesus and the judgment of the nations and they'll usually go to verses such, um, as such as verse 40. Let me back it up a little bit. Jesus says, uh, let's go to 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. For I was hungry. they will usually start in verse 35. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer and say, Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And Jesus said, uh, says in verse uh, 40, he answers them and says, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was uh, for I was hungry. So the righteous are those who feed him. Now the issue here is what is this all about? Is Jesus laying down a principle that we should be feeding the hungry and uh, giving drink to the thirsty and taking in all, any stranger off the street, clothing the poor? Is that what this is talking about? or is he talking about something else? Well, the most important thing is context, and the context for Matthew 25 actually begins in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, we find Jesus uh, having gone to the temple, leaving the temple, and his disciples come up to him and point out all the beautiful buildings and fantastic architecture uh, that that Herod has developed for the the rebuilding or, or renovation of the temple at that time, and it was probably close to being the eighth wonder of the uh, ancient world. And Jesus says to them, you see all these things, and surely I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And he begins to, then they ask him the question, they say, well, when will this happen? When's this going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so they want to know what is going to happen prior to the coming of Christ. And so Matthew chapter 24 is answering that question, and it moves into chapter 25 because the parables that Jesus begins to tell, the parable of the fig tree in twenty four thirty two to 35, uh, parable of the faithful and uh, wise servant in Matthew 24, 45 to 51, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25, 1 to 13, the parable of the talents, and Matthew 25, 14 to 26 all relate to the future kingdom. Um, all, uh, the, Matthew 25, 1, the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins. He's talking about that future kingdom. Matthew 25, 14, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. And so it's, all of this is talking about something in the future, and then we come to Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, which is our immediate context. And the first verse to set this up says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. So this is when the Messiah, that term Son of Man, comes out of Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, and it refers to the messianic, uh, God, man, king who will come as a son of David to rule over Israel and their uh, magnificent future kingdom. He, and it says at that time there will be a judgment of the nations. And there's a lot of debate here whether the word that is translated nations refers to nations in, or to Gentiles. It's a judgment, I believe, on the Gentiles, on individuals, not on national entities, but on the Gentiles, goyim, ethnoi in the Greek, goyim in the the Hebrew. And all the nations, or all the Gentiles, will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So you have the sheep on the right hand, which only makes sense because Jesus is conservative, so he puts the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, and um, he says um, then he's going to establish the basis for his judgment. Now, this judgment has to do with the the Gentiles who survive the tribulation. This is not the end of time judgment at the great white throne judgment. This is not the Bema seat or the uh, the, the judgment seat of Christ, which takes place in relation to the church uh, after immediately after the rapture. This is a judgment that comes immediately after the second coming when Jesus is judging the Gentiles who have survived Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period. And so he is going to have a criteria for, for evaluating the Gentiles. And he says to um, those on his right hand, that is the sheep, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to say, I was hungry, you gave me drink. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Who's the I here? The I here is not, he's not talking about himself personally, but that he represented a group of people. This becomes clear when they ask the question, say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink, or when did we see you as a stranger take you in and clothe you? When did verse thirty nine? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And he answers them and said, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Now, who are the my brethren here? The My Brethren is very clear. He's not talking about the entire human race. That is, a, that is something, a concept that got read into this passage in the context of 19th century Protestant liberalism. When, you, when One of their major ideas was that there's no exclusivity on salvation. Everybody's going to go to heaven because God is the father of everyone. But Scripture says that that's not true. The New Testament does not teach the universal fatherhood of God. So the brethren here has a specific reference. And in Matthew, my brethren refers either literally to my brothers, Jesus, literal physical brothers who were born to Mary and Joseph after he was born, but it also refers only to the Jewish people. So my brethren here isn't talking about anybody It is talking about how the Gentiles treated the Jewish people during the tribulation period when the Antichrist and Satan are trying to destroy the Jewish people so that God cannot fulfill his promises to the the Jewish people. This is a source of of, a time of great anti-Semitism. And so what Jesus is saying is, you're being evaluated at this judgment on the basis of whether you treated and dealt honorably with the jewish people or not now the only way that you would know that the jewish people are still god's people is if you were a a believer and you learned this from the word of god there's an assumption here that that, that only those who who were blessing the Jews were those who were believers. Unbelievers would not do that. They would have no reason for it. And the anti-Semitism that becomes evident at the end of the tribulation uh, period is worldwide. Every nation will be against Israel and every person in every nation. Today we have very few nations who stand with Israel consistently. The United States is one of those nations. Why is it that the United States is historically supportive of the Jewish people? Uh, you may not realize this, but the, the the United States from the colonial period has been pro the restoration of the Jewish people to Israel. In the period just prior to the major influx of Israel, uh, uh, Puritans in the 1630s. In the 1630s, things had become so bad under under the uh, Tudor kings in uh, in England, not the Tudors, the Stuarts. Under the Stuarts in England, that um, the Puritans were leaving by droves. Something like uh, 30,000 or so uh, immigrated in that decade from England to the Boston colony. And it's at that time that, that in in, as in the development of Puritan theology, they began to discover, really discover, and began to understand the Old Testament. And the Puritans just became infatuated with the Jewish people, and they understood that God had a future plan. See, for a period of almost of, of over a thousand years at that point, Western Christianity had been dominated by replacement theology. Once you have the shift that occurred in the 3rd century, 4th century to, to an allegorical interpretation of Scripture uh, led by a man named Origen uh, and, and then basically institutionalized by uh, Augustine by the, by the fifth, early 5th century, what you have is a belief that, the, that the God turned his back on the Jewish people completely and replaced them with the church. And all of the promises that God made literally to Abraham, promise of a literal land between uh, the literal Euphrates and the Mediterranean, that that became spiritualized. And so the literal land was no longer literal land. It was heaven. And so crossing the Jordan River uh, became spiritualized as dying and crossing over into the promised land, which would be uh, arriving in heaven. And you read about that. You hear this in spirituals. You hear this in, uh, you know, the swing low, sweet chariot type of spiritual. The chariot's taking us across the Jordan into heaven. Um, that kind of an idea. It was this allegorical interpretation uh, of Scripture. But after the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s, as theologians began to cons- work out the the uh, implications of a literal interpretation. Uh, decade by decade, they had to fight their major battles the first 50 years on justification by faith. It took 100 years before they began to recover uh, a literal view of the millennium and a literal view of of, uh, of Israel, that Israel wasn't just a, a spiritualized term for the church, but it li- still referred to genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to give you a uh, an idea there was one uh, there was one uh, writer in England one pastor who wrote a book in the late uh, 1590s who was the first person we know of who wrote in print that there would be a restoration of the Jewish people to Israel and there was still such a such a anti-semitic feeling in england at the time because they're still dominated by this allegorical replacement theology that they burned him at the stake his name was thomas brightman and they burned him at the stake because he he published that commentary now that's in about 1595 within just 30 years within 30 years from that time the puritans have, have just radically changed because of the impact of, of a literal interpretation of scripture. And they're so, falling so much in love with the Jewish people, they're naming all of their children Jewish names, uh, Old Testament names, and they're, they're, they're identifying because of the oppression of the, the, the Jews in the Old Testament in Egypt and their oppression under the uh, steward kings. They're identifying with with, uh, with that oppression and they want to be free. So they, they leave England and they go to Massachusetts and what do they call it? It's the new, new Zion. It's the new Israel and we're going to be the new people of God. Uh, and they see, they've still got problems with allegorical interpretation. They haven't gotten everything uh, cleaned up yet, but they are... There, many of them were premillennial, like the Mather dynasty, uh, Increase Mather, Richard Mather, Cotton Mather were premillennial, and they, in their writings, affirmed that God was going to restore the Jewish people to their historic national homeland. Now, they believed it would occur uh, before before uh, Jesus came back. They clearly believed that they were premillennial, and that laid a foundation within the history of the United States, so that. That in the colonial period, because of that influence coming out of England, that even though there was a very small uh, number of Jews in uh, the colonies, it was open to freely open to Jewish uh, immigration. Now, England, back at the time of uh, Richard I, at the end of the 12th century, had um, or was it under John? I think it was under John. Had what? Edward. That's right, Edward I, thank you. Uh, Edward I had, had kicked the Jews out of England, had just completely removed them, and it was illegal for Jews to be in England. And so from the time of Edward I until um, the time of Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell signed a document which made it legal once again for J- Jews to return to England, and this was in the 1650s. And, and, and as a result of the influence of this, of Puritan theology. That may be the primary reason in God's plan that he allowed for the regicide of Charles I and the ascendancy of the Puritans is simply so that the, uh, Jewish people would be welcomed back into, uh, into England. And this was a, a fascinating uh, story because it involved two separate groups of people, as as the whole history of Zionism does. It involved two separate groups of people. On the one hand, you had a Jewish rabbi who finally got a um, uh, who finally had a council with the uh, with with uh, uh, Cromwell, and he came to him, and his rationale was that according to the Old Testament, God wouldn't restore the Jews. ...to their native land and t- because he's going to bring them back from all the lands of the earth. Well, there aren't any Jews in England, so if you want the Jews to be restored to their native land, you have to let them into England... And then, and they will be in all of the lands of the world. So, even among a Jewish, with a Jewish rabbi, you had this eschatological hope that the Messiah would only come if the Jews can get scattered to all the lands. So, you better let them back into England so the Messiah can come. Well, the Christians, there was a brother and sister by the last name of Cartwright, and they had a a similar view. And their view, they recognize the same thing, and so they're writing letters from uh, Amsterdam. They were like the, the 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 pilgrims, the separatist pilgrims who had left England, were living in Holland, and they were writing letters to Cromwell with the same kind of rationale that that the Bible teaches that Jesus won't return until the uh, until the, the Jews are um, are restored from all the lands of the earth. There aren't any Jews in England, so you better let them in because Jesus can't come back until the Jews complete this scattering to all the lands of the earth. And so there's, in in American history, there is this, it was called British Restorationism at that time, and this dominated uh, um, and was a prominent view in in the colonies and the founding of this this country. There's a... um, there's a book that probably none of you will, will read or wade your way through. I've, re- I've, I haven't waded my way through the whole thing. And it is called something along the line, Power, Fantasy, Faith, Power, and Fantasy by Michael Orrin, who is uh, an American from New Jersey, brilliant, educated PhD, I believe, from Columbia, or he taught there. And he is currently the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. And it's about a 500, 600 page book. Uh, tracing the history of the involvement and role of, of, the, uh, uh, of the United States in the Middle East from 1776 to the present. And he just has fantastic information uh, in there about the uh, positive view of the United States towards uh, the Jewish people and their restoration to their national homeland all through our history. And it is because of that that we're different from Europe and all the other places. Why is Europe not pro-Israel? Because their whole theology is grounded in in, uh, in Germany, in Lutheranism, which was replacement theology, in uh, uh, Holland and other areas in Reformed theology, it was replacement, a form of replacement theology. In France, in Spain, in Italy, it was... Uh, Roman Catholicism, which is replacement theology, so they had this. This replacement theology is really the the seedbed uh, wherein uh, anti-Semitism can develop, and so historically, the United States has always supported a return of the Jews to their historic national homeland, because that's what the Bible teaches. And anyone who doesn't uh, support that, we have one candidate for president running right now who does not believe Israel has the right to exist, which ignores a lot of international law, uh, ignores a tremendous amount of history, and is really a backdoor anti-Semitism because if Israel doesn't have a home base that is safe... I'll remember playing tag when you were a kid. There was always some place you could go that you were you were safe. If you touch it, you're you're free, you're okay. If the Jewish people do not have Israel to go to, they have no safe home base, and it is a tacit approval of of a second Holocaust. I don't care how you try to pretty it up. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig, and you can't pretty this up. It is anti Semitic. It may be a backdoor soft anti passive anti Semitism, but it is anti Semitism. Uh, people today who are ignorant of the scholarly literature on the subject want to argue and fight on this issue that anti Israel isn't anti Semitism. But if you believe that being anti Israel isn't anti Semitism, then I have a bridge in Brooklyn. I'll be glad to sell you for about $20 billion. Because you're a fool, you're historically ignorant, and you're, interna- and you're ignorant of international law. And yet we have politicians in this country who are running for president who believe this. And this is just absolutely absurd. Now I'll get off that hobby horse. The principle that I'm saying, this country has always been supportive of Israel. And that's what this passage is dealing with, is that in the tribulation period, Israel is going to come under attack from all of the nations in the entire world. Even the United States will be anti-Semitic by this time. Only Christians that become Christians during the tribulation period are going to be pro-Jewish and protect the Jews, feed them when they're under persecution, protect them when they're under persecution, and provide for them. This is a passage that has nothing whatsoever to do with economics and socialism, but has everything to do with protecting and providing security and protection for the Jewish people uh, during the time of any, any uh, Holocaust or program or anti-Semitism, but especially during uh, and specifically during the tribulation period. So Matthew 25 Acts 4 are the two passages that are commonly used to support socialism, and they just don't work. So let me kind of wrap some of this up in terms of a conclusion. How did we get in this mess that we're in today? Because we're living in a nation today where you have a number of evangelical leaders, and I'm not talking about the Ronsiders and the, the extreme left wing. I'm talking about others who are uh, leaders in the entire megachurch movement and what is coming, you know, the next wave, which is called the emergent church movement. And these leaders are uh, socialist to their very core. And they they read each other's literature and they support each other and they have as a theological foundation a lot of... Uh, a lot of subterfuge and trickery. On the one hand, they will affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, but on the other hand, in practice, they reject it. And so they say, "Oh no, no, we're, we believe in, and in, uh, we, we believe in, in free market economics." But on the other hand, they set forth social agendas that are uh, perfectly parallel to the uh, UN's Millennial uh, Goals to end hunger and to end uh poverty and and these kinds of things. So how did we get into this kind of a mess? Well, we got into this kind of a mess because of things that happened uh historically starting in the late 17 1700s and and, and even earlier. You you in in understanding culture and history, you always have to ask three questions. What does a group of people believe about authority? Who's the ultimate authority uh, for truth? Is the ultimate authority God? Is the ultimate authority man? Is the ultimate authority tradition? Is the ultimate authority some institution like uh, a religious institution? What's the ultimate authority? Uh, The second thing you need to ask a question about is what is their view of God? Do they have a small God who really just sort of sits out there and doesn't do a whole lot and basically uh, human beings run the show, his creatures run the show? Do they have a view of God where he's just basically a like, like a big blown-up version of man? He's, he just has more power, but he's, he's just a man that's, that's larger and more powerful. He's not the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Jacob. Or do they have a God that's part of creation? He's, he's, do they have a pantheistic or panentheistic view where they say, well, God is in the trees. No, God is not in the trees. God created the trees. He is totally distinct from his creation. God isn't in the cows. He's not in the rats. He's not in the, in the animals. He's not in... Uh, in when you, Once you get into those kinds of views where deity is in the animals, then you don't want to kill the animals. Now you're going to go hungry. Um, it has got an impersonal force, and you have all kinds of people today. We had this just, just. Uh, it was bad in the in the 80s, and now it's a lot worse. You have people into all kinds of spirit spiritualism. Oh, I'm a very spiritual person. Well, would you please define that for me? Well, I just believe that that there's this 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 unknown God that's out there, and his energy and life force just goes in and through all of us. I said, so basically you're like uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, the force is in us and through us and holds everything together and, and uh, you're, you're just another pantheist. You're, you're living in a Star Wars world and not in this world uh, because that's the view they have of God. He's in us. He's part of all of us. He binds us together. Um, or do we have a personal, infinite creator God, which is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's personal in that he interacts, communicates, has a relationship with individual persons, but at the same time he is an infinite God. And the third question to ask is on the view of man. Is man totally independent, totally autonomous uh, of God, independent of God? God has nothing, no controls whatsoever. Uh, Do you have a view of man where he's just a cosmic accident, which is what we have in Darwinism? Or is man a, a specifically designed creature in the image of God? And we have to ask further questions. Is man basically good or basically evil? Basically evil doesn't mean he can't do good things or doesn't do good things, but that the orientation of his soul is basically towards, towards himself. And so we have to look at these things. Now, what happened historically was that as Western civilization moved out of the Protestant Reformation, which was from 1517 to about 1650. You then went into another period called the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, the, the, uh, the intellectuals in the Western world rejected the Bible as a source of authority. Part of the problem was that before that, in the what they called the Dark Ages out of their arrogance, they were enlightened, but those people who lived before were dark and they were not enlightened, is that they, they, mit, had, they confused the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church basically said, what we teach is the Bible. But that wasn't what they were teaching. The Roman Catholic Church taught, ha, had taken a lot of things in the Bible and had mixed it with Platonism and later Aristotelian, uh, Aristotelian, Aristotelianism and later uh, nominalism. And so, what was taught as absolute dogma, theological dogma, by the Roman Catholic Church, wasn't—was stuff that wasn't even in the the Bible. It was a result of tradition. So, the authority going back to our, our chart there was not God's word, the Bible. It was their tradition. And so you didn't go back to the bottom. The Protestant Reformation used as sort of a battle cry, sola scriptura, the scripture alone, not the scripture plus tradition, or the scripture plus an institution or anything of, um, of that nature. And so the Enlightenment period put an emphasis on human reason apart from God. We're going to be able to ascertain all truth Without God telling us anything, because ultimately they they were beginning to reject the idea that there was a God that was really there. So God was getting for them God was getting smaller until he just became an impersonal force. By the time you get and and then nothing by the time you get into the late 19th century, at the same time their view of man is getting larger and larger. Man is more capable until you get into the late 19th century. Man is the definer of 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 all truth. And so what happened as, a re, as you go through to the end of the Enlightenment period, which goes from about 1750, I mean 1650 to about 1790-1800, um, you have many, there, there are different forms of the Enlightenment. There's a radical Enlightenment in France, there's the Enlightenment in Britain, but you had one form of the Enlightenment in Scotland that was called Scottish Common Sense Reality. And one of the and, and it was heavily influenced by biblical truth. It was more biblical than it was uh, rationalistic. And one of the great lights of the Scottish Common Sense Enlightenment was a man named Adam Smith who wrote a classic economic book that changed, uh, changed the West, Western civilization called The Wealth of the Nations. And that was published in 1776. Hmm. Just a coincidence, Right. And, uh, so that changes, changes the West, but, but by that time, the Enlightenment is already beginning to get rejected by a lot of intellectuals, and they're shifting from the tight reason and logic of the Enlightenment, which in many cases was bad, and, but because they, they've rejected God, the only thing they have to go to, once you reject reason, is what? Emotion. And so you had the rise of Romanticism. If you want to understand the difference between Romanticism and the Enlightenment, listen to, uh, listen to some symphonies written, like, listen to, like, Mozart versus Beethoven. And you'll, you'll hear some of the, some of the difference. Beethoven's extremely emotional. So there's a shift to emotion and subjectivism and to forms of mysticism. And idealism, mysticism, always it goes sort of hand in hand with idealism. You have Hegel comes along, and sets forth his philosophy in the early 1800s, and this shapes thinking in in England, and it it, it shapes the background for Marx, for Darwin, for Herb, Herbert Spencer, who's the sort of the father of uh, uh, sociology, uh, for for Freud, and for economic thinking and the, now you've completely slipped your anchor from the historic roots of Christianity and you're just free-floating. And so Marx's ideas begin to penetrate uh, the West so that by the early 20th century you have the rise of what is called modern progressivism, otherwise known as liberalism. Liberalism originally was the idea of l- being liberated from restrictive authority of the, of, of, of the church or tyranny. But by the early 20th century, this word changes its meaning so that liberalism becomes progressivism, and the idea of progressivism is that, looking at the third category, man is totally autonomous, he's basically good, which means he can create a utopic or perfect society, and man just has to do it. He can do that only under the guidance uh, of an elite uh, of an elite few my question is who gives them the right to determine uh, what's right what's wrong what's enough money what's not enough money things of that uh, of that nature and so by the time you get into the middle 20th century uh, or so late middle 20th century the 30s with the depression you have uh, progressivism that really got a toehold first with uh, Theodore Roosevelt later with uh, with Woodrow Wilson and then with uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. These ideas begin to be accepted more and more. Uh, by the population in the West. And these include ideas such as when there are basic problems, social problems, it's not the the private sector's responsibility to solve them, it's the public sector's responsibility to solve them. It's government's responsibility to solve them. And so there's a shift away from the value of the individual and his responsibility to the corporate solution, the corporate solution in terms of government, the corporate solution in terms of, of institutions. And so if we 're going to have a perfect, peaceful earth and a utopia, this is only going to come in if government does it and so you have the rise first in in uh, in Europe because Europe always preceded the u s but now uh, we want to be like Europe we want to have an economy like Europe we want to have a health system like europe and And what made the United States distinct from Europe was the emphasis on the individual. Individual responsibility individual potential you 're either going to emphasize the individual 's right to shape his life or you 're going to emphasize uh, the security which is provided by uh, by the by the government you 're either going to have true freedom which is going to be a freedom of opportunity or you 're going to have a, a freedom that is really a pseudo freedom. That, that is trying to guarantee equal results. You're either going to have equal opportunity or equal results. You cannot have both. And when you move towards equal results so that everybody has the same thing, what you've done is you've destroyed personal individual responsibility, personal individual freedom. You have completely violated all of the initial principles that are laid down in the Word of God for a society, and the result is going to be eventually all this is going to collapse. And when this collapses, that generation that's around, is those who survive are only going to be those whose mind is fortified by the principles of of the Word of God because God has given us the only solution, and that's in His Word. It's not through politics. It's not through whoever's going to be elected next time or not elected next time. If the people in this nation do not turn back to the founding principles of this nation, which came out of the Bible, then there will be only a future of further economic malaise and uh, a future of further uh, disasters in this, in this country, and we will lose the affluence and, and the greatness that we once had because people think somehow that was wrong. We don't have the right to really succeed and do great. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to think our way through the principles that you've laid out in your word because they are principles where you have promised that if we follow those principles, whether we believe, even believe in in Christ or not, whether we're Christians, whether we really believe in you or not, if we follow those principles, there will be economic prosperity. And if we don't follow those principles, there will be economic disaster. But real blessing ultimately comes not because of physical factors, but because of spiritual factors. And a nation, a culture that has rejected you will self implode and self destruct because they are so divorced from reality. And reality is defined by you who created it. And Father, we know that the only hope, the only solution that we have is Jesus Christ because he is the one that you sent to, first of all, pay the penalty for sin but he's the one who will return to, and he is the only one who can return and establish a perfect kingdom upon this earth where there really will be a solution to all of the social problems uh, that mankind has because all the social problems are ultimately grounded in a sin problem and a spiritual problem, and until that spiritual problem is completely, sufficiently solved, there can be no solution to any of the symptoms which are poverty and war and disease and all of these other things. So, Father, we thank you that we have hope. We have a certainty. We have a future destiny. And that we know that this is true because of your word and what you have revealed to us. And we thank you for the enlightenment that that gives us because we know the truth. And it is that biblical truth that gives us true freedom in our soul.